the, the song we just sung, His, uh, His Mercy is More, uh, we taught that to the kids down in Praiseville. Um, I don't know, I, I usually come on things late as far as the, you know, what's going on in the music world. So I don't know if that song is relatively new or not, um, but whenever you find a good song, it's worth working in to the rotation or into the repertoire. And in particular, um, one of the things I appreciate about that song and just thinking about um, myself and my family and kids, um, thinking about the kids here at the church and even the congregation as a whole, it's, um, from my perspective anyway, it's becoming harder and harder to find songs that actually talk about the fact that we are horrendous sinners, right? Like we, the church used to have a much better vocabulary for this sort of thing than it seems like what we have now. So, you know, in the spirit of amazing grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Uh, more often than not, it seems like a lot of the stuff that comes out these days, not just in terms of the music, but uh, some of the devotional work, um, stuff that's being published, uh, just the whole vibe, um, we're, we're very quick and eager to talk about the fact that God forgives or that God loves us, but very little attention is put on why that forgiveness and that love is so great and unbelievable. And if you're missing out on the part that we are unbelievably wretched sinners, you miss paradoxically, you miss how great the love of God is and how great His forgiveness is. So what happens a lot of time then, and I'll, I'll say this and I'll get off the soapbox and I'll go to the Word where I'm standing on better ground. I think what happens a lot of time is that more and more this day, because we hear God's love being preached and sung and His forgiveness being discussed without having that, that black backdrop of our sin, God in many ways comes across almost like as a hopeless romantic more than he does anything else. Like, in other words, he loves us and he forgives us just because he can't help himself almost. And on the one hand, I, you know, we don't want to deny that God freely loves and loves us beyond what we can imagine. But again, if we're missing out the front half of that, that what makes his love so unbelievably good is how little we deserve it, then we're actually doing ourselves a great disservice. We're actually cheapening God's love rather than exalting it. So that's one of the reasons that we did that song. That's one of the reasons that we worked that song into this service because um, it fits well with the passage that we have uh, that we're going to look at this morning and this same sort of tension where on the one hand you have an episode where the sinfulness, the wickedness of God's people is being brought to the foreground. And the people are being convicted of this great evil that they have done. And then right behind that, this word of hope and comfort that even though you have done great wickedness, even though you are evil, God will not abandon you. So, follow with me. I'm, I'm going to read an extended portion of Scripture here because even though we won't necessarily cover every line, it's important to get the flow in before we start picking on or landing on some of the highlights. So in 1 Samuel chapter 12, I'm going to start at verse 6. 
And as you're listening, you want to listen and think through how does the wickedness of God's people show out in this passage, and then what is it about God in spite of the wickedness and evil of His people? What is it that He does that makes Him so great in all of His actions and in all of His attitudes? So in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 6, then Samuel said to the people, it is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. So now take your stand that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did for you and your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. So he sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jerubal and Badan and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around so that you lived in security. When you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for, and behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. If you will not listen to the voice of the Lord but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Even now take your stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call to the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. Then you will know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Then all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God so that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. Samuel said to the people, do not fear, you have committed all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. You must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver because they are futile. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name. Because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes so that we would see wonderful things from your word. 
give us the ability to see what we would rather not see, which is our sinfulness, our wickedness, our evil in the sight of the Lord. And in doing that, help us to marvel in a fresh way at your unfailing love, at your mercy and kindness and compassion. Help us to be overjoyed by the security that we have through the work of your son, Jesus Christ, who suffered and died and paid for every sin that we have ever committed or will commit in this short life that we have. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who works through the preaching, the reading, the meditating of your word to give us the ability to, to see things and to understand things that previously were hidden to us. Thank you for your great mercy. And may all that we do and say now not only please you, but make your name sound great to one another and to the world around us. We pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our wickedness is great, but he is greater. One of the things that's interesting in this, uh, in this passage, um, and let me, let me backtrack just a little bit. Of course, Samuel is talking primarily about the fact that the wickedness that he has in mind is the evil and the wickedness that was in the heart of the people in asking for a king, which the Lord did. He, he gave them Saul. And then from Saul, we go to David and Solomon and so on and so forth. One of the things that's interesting in, in this particular passage, it's in 1 Samuel 8 that we have the story or the events of the people asking for a king. And in 1 Samuel 8, there are a couple things that happen there that don't show up here in chapter 12. One, when the people go to Samuel and when they ask for a king, they say, we want a king to judge us or to rule us like all the other nations. So right off the bat, you know that something is not right with their motivation. They're not, they're not asking from pure motives that they would have a king. Number two, also interesting, is that when Samuel is troubled by the request and he goes to the Lord to say, this doesn't sound good, the people are asking for a king, and the Lord tells Samuel, yeah, Samuel, you know, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. If you go back and if you read in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the interesting thing is when Samuel is sent back to the people to warn them, he does not warn them about the fact that they are rejecting God by asking for a king. Actually, what happens is the Lord tells Samuel, go and warn the people about what it will be like living under a king. And so Samuel goes back and he says, well, here's what's going to happen. If you get a king, he's going to tax you. He's going to take your possessions. He's going to take your kids. He's going to write all these sorts of things. The freedom that you enjoy now, that's going to be diminished all because of the king that you want and that you're asking, are you sure you really want this? Because if it happens, even when you realize that you've made a mistake, if you call out to the Lord, he's not going to reverse this. Once you step through this door, this is done. Never, though, does Samuel say to the people, do you understand that you're rejecting God as your king when you ask for that? But here he does. So here's, what I, here's one of the important things that I want you to understand. By the time that we get to 1 Samuel chapter 12, Saul has already been chosen. He's already been appointed as king. Saul has actually 
had some success as king. God has actually done some good things on behalf of his people through Saul. But it appears that it's not until chapter 12 that the people actually find out that what they did was an evil, wicked thing. In other words, they asked for a king, not thinking, hey, what you're doing here is rejecting the true king. They asked for a king, and they got a king, and they continued on their merry way, having no clue, being totally oblivious to what it is that they had actually done, not knowing what was in their heart of hearts. And yet, even though they didn't even realize the sin and the wickedness they had committed, did that absolve them of their guilt? Give me a shake of the head. Give me a... Okay, no, yes, good. No, it didn't. Ignorance does not absolve them of their guilt. They are guilty far beyond what they can imagine, and they don't even know it. Which, of course, as we work through, is one of the things that makes God's mercy and His grace even more significant. That He is being merciful to them when they don't even have enough sense to recognize their sin, let alone to confess and repent of their sin. The other thing that's, that needs to be pointed out here, and this is where we, we come back a little bit to, more to chapter 12, is that there are at least three places in the Pentateuch, one in Genesis, one in Numbers, one in Deuteronomy, where by strong implication, if not explicitly, it's stated that at some point in time, Israel will have a king, which means that there's another sort of tension that runs through here that leads us to believe that the problem is not, first and foremost, that the people would ask for a king, but that it's what lies behind the request. Do you, you get what we're saying? In other words, God had made provision before the people ever went into the land and settled in, before the people became a formal, firm, recognizable nation, God had already hinted at and had made provision for the fact that they would one day have a king. So the fact that they would ask for a king at this point, in and of itself, that request is not a bad request, even though God says, this was an evil and wicked thing that you've done. So the question is, if it wasn't in and of itself wrong to ask for a king, if a king is not the problem, where does the evil and the wickedness come in? How do we get to, to the fact that in asking for a king, they have rejected God as king? And there are two, two phrases that show up in 1 Samuel 12, I think, that give us a hint as to what is going on here. Skip, uh, go back down to verse 8. And, and listen to the pattern as Samuel is, re, is reviewing Israel's earlier history. In verse 8, Samuel says, When Jacob went into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. Then he says, And you came into the land... You face more opposition. You face more threats. Look at verse 10. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord. 
but now deliver us from the hands of our enemies. And then verse 11 says, and the Lord sent leaders, commanders to deliver them. But then in verse 12, which brings us up to the present day, Samuel says, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, what's, what's missing in the third event? In the first two events that both in Egypt and during the time of the judges, Samuel said when the people were under threat, when they were being pressured, when they were going through times of suffering and affliction, they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord responded by providing them with a leader or leaders to bring them out of their trouble, to deliver them, to give them victory. In this instance, what's missing is the people never cry out to the Lord. They go to Samuel and they say, Samuel, we know how this problem needs to be fixed and how it needs to be resolved. You need to find us a king. And the Lord never seems to cross their mind. So it's because the people take it upon themselves to solve their problems, because the people take it upon themselves to manufacture their own security and their own blessing, and they do so without ever turning their attention to the Lord, that God says, in my sight, what you have done, even though you may be following a pattern that I set, because you're doing this on your own, that is evil. That is rejecting me as your king, and it's trying to prop up another king to take my place. So the very first point then, our wickedness is great when we dethrone God. Here's the challenge for us. We read 1 Samuel 12, and we just sort of shake our heads, right, in that pious sort of way. Oh, Israel. When will those Old Testament people ever learn? Didn't they know they had God for their king? How often do you cry out to the Lord? Or putting, putting it in more practical terms, if the issue here, if the wickedness and the evil of the people in rejecting God as king is rooted in the fact that they did not cry out to the Lord to provide their deliverance, then one of the questions has to be, we could go from the language of crying out to the language of prayer. Do you pray? Do you pray often? Do you pray with energy? So, any number of situations. The Lord says in Psalm 50, if you want to jot down this reference, you don't have to turn to it now. Psalm 50, 15, call on me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. Do you hear that pattern again? When you're in trouble, you call on me, I will rescue you. He doesn't say how. There could be any number of ways that he could do it. But I will be the one to rescue you, and you will honor me. Implication being you will honor me, one, because you call upon me as the one who can help you. And you'll honor me by showing that I'm able to save you. When you're stressed out, 
what is your first reaction? Right? You get, to the long, you get to the end of a long day or a long week. Do you call out to the Lord for rest and peace? Or do you make yourself a new king and say, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to find my rest by binge-watching on Netflix? Because doesn't, doesn't the true king say, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest? When you're stressed out, when you're tired, when you're weak, when you're fatigued, is your first reaction, is your heart response to cry out to the Lord for rest? Or do you say, no, I know where I can find rest. I'll find it over here. And in trying to find rest over here and trying to manufacture a second-rate kind of rest, just like they try to manufacture a second-rate kind of king, are you dethroning God? Husbands and wives, parents, grandparents, when your spouse is driving you nuts, or when your children are off the rails, what is your first response? Do you call out to the Lord? Or... Do you say, now where was that podcast that talked about 10 easy steps to have well-mannered children? <laughs> Podcasts are great. Podcasts are fine. I listen to them. I love them. But if turning to a podcast in order to find instruction and direction and stability for my home is my first response and first reaction rather than crying out to the Lord, rather than listening for the word of the Lord through His word, I am dethroning God for a second-rate counselor. Or... When God says in His Word, in my presence is fullness of joy, and in my right hand are pleasures forever. Eternal joy, forever pleasure. And you say, no, but the way that I'm going to find joy and pleasure and enjoyment, I'm going to turn to drink and food and sex and toys and... So you're short on joy, and you manufacture a second-rate joy, and in the process, you dethrone God, who is the only real and true source of any joy worth having. So you get it, right? You start to see what happened with Israel here when they were under threat, and they turn and they say, here's how we're going to solve this. This is not unique to Old Testament people because they were so thick-headed. This is the human condition. This is you and me because we are riddled with insecurity, fear, 
selfishness, but rather than bend the knee and go to a king who is able to relieve us and deliver us from all of these things, we would rather find a king in our own image, in our own making, that we can be more comfortable with. I can do everything that God has, can do for me, and I can do it quicker, and I can do it better, and I can do it more along my timeline and more along my liking. People, the culture that we swim in, the air that we breathe, reeks of this stuff. Right? The American culture says we are about independence and self-sufficiency and do-it-yourself. We've got entire shows that that's all they are preaching to us every day. Have you ever stopped to wonder that when you try to manufacture security or blessing or peace or joy without calling out to the Lord to do that for you, that it is not just a little quirk or a little glitch, it is evil. Because whether you would say it or whether you even recognize it or not, you are dethroning God and putting someone or something else up on the throne. And that's where you're going to find your joy and happiness and your security. People, we commit evil, wicked acts every day. Like this. Now, in the midst of all of that, Right? Here's also something to point out. When, when Samuel confronts the people about this and their eyes are open and they realize it, they get it. When you skip down to verse 19, notice the people hear that God considers this rebellion a wicked, evil act. And the people say to Samuel in verse 19, pray for your servants to the Lord your God so that we may not die for we have added to all our sins, I think by that they mean all the sins that we, that we know of, we have even added to that this one that we didn't know about, this evil by asking for ourselves a king. Samuel says, do not fear, it's not that bad. Is that what Samuel says? Don't worry, it's not really that big of a deal. No, Samuel says, do not fear, you have committed all this evil. Listen, Christians, one of, the, one of the dilemmas that we have in dealing with sin for what it is, is that we are more concerned about making each other feel comfortable than we are about making sure that we are reconciled to God. So that when someone comes and when they confess their sin, we, we want to make them feel like it's okay. Well, you know, then again, this was going on. So it's understandable that someone in your position would do this. There's a very real need for Christians with all of the grace and the humility of Christ himself 
to say, just as Jesus does to the adulterous woman, yeah, you're right. That man is not your husband. Or to say like Samuel does, you're right. You have committed all this evil. So if the hope or the encouragement that's going to come to the people is not in the fact that, well, they thought that their sin was bad, but really it turns out it's not that bad, where is any kind of hope or good news or grace going to come in? They've acknowledged the fact that their sin is great. Samuel has confirmed it. God himself has said the very, the very thing that they are lamenting. And then Samuel turns and says this, the worst thing for you to do, I'm paraphrasing here, the worst thing for you to do is to continue in this sin by trying to find some other kind of cheap fix. Don't continue to turn. Don't continue to try to fix it yourself. Don't turn aside. Turn. Come back to the Lord. And then Samuel says this, if you continue to chase after things to, to fix this, they will not profit you. They will not deliver. Come back to the Lord, verse 22, for the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name. Because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Samuel is saying the reason that you can come back and the reason that you ought to come running back is not because your sin is not a big deal. But it's because God has freely, knowingly attached his name and his reputation to you. And that's the only reason why you have hope. Because if something goes wrong with you so that you are put down, so that you're destroyed, God looks weak. And God will not allow himself to look weak. The Lord's reputation is on the line. If the Lord is not big enough to forgive a big sin, he is not a big God. If the Lord is not able to rule and to conquer an unruly people, he is not a great king. Is that the kind of reputation that the Lord is going to put out there for people to see? That he can't handle the sins and the rebellion of his people? He just doesn't have it in him? So the motivation to come back to the Lord and to repent is not because, well, I am, after all, despite all my flaws, I am sort of lovable. My wife tells me every day. Or the motivation to come back is not, well, of course the Lord understands because I was under just unbelievable pressure. I panicked. So did Israel. They were under unbelievable pressure, life and death kind of pressure. They panicked, and the Lord still said, that was evil. The motivation to come back is not because your sin is small or because you're lovable, but because when you come back to God and God shows himself able to conquer your sin and clean you and purify you and refine you, God looks great. Hundreds of years ago, Martin Luther was writing a letter to his right-hand man. They were separated. 
because of some of the threats that Luther was under. Philip Melanchthon. Um, I don't know how familiar you are. Let's not put the quote up just yet. Go back. Yeah, okay. Don't want to spoil it. Luther was sort of the, the, the loud, bombastic type, right? Larger than life. Always said, you know, these brash, provocative things to try to communicate his point. His right-hand man, who did a lot of work with him, Philip Melanchthon, he was, he was sort of more the opposite, more introspective, more internalized things, mulled over things. And one of the things, apparently, that Melanchthon struggled with, he struggled with micromanaging, psychoanalyzing his, his sin to try to think, what do I need to do with my sin in order to make sure that it's adequately dealt with? And Luther recognized that one of the unique um, pitfalls from a lengthen was that when someone begins to look at their sin and begins to think, okay, what level of sin is this? That one of the things that the human heart always wants to do, it always wants to justify itself. Right? It either wants to justify itself by saying the sin is not really as bad as what I feel like it is, or it wants to justify itself by saying, well, that sin was bad, but I did do this, and that takes care of it. And so Luther writes a letter to Melanchthon, trying to get him convinced of the fact that when you're dealing with sin, the very last thing that you want to do is to try to minimize or justify your sin. You want to go running to God and find forgiveness. So here's, here's how Luther puts it in his shocking sort of way. We can, we can put the quote up on the screen now. In his letter to Melanchthon, he says in part this, God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner and let your sins be strong, but let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. He goes on to say, no sin can separate us from Him. Even if we were to kill or commit adultery thousands of times each day, do you think such an exalted lamb paid merely a small price with a meager sacrifice for our sins? And then I love this last line. Pray hard, for you are quite a sinner. One of the things, one of the greatest, greatest joys in the Christian life is to come before the Lord and is to say this very thing I am a great sinner. I have failed here. I have failed there. But you are a great God. You have promised that every day the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, that your mercies never come to an end, that they are new every morning. And so here I am again, admitting my sin, admitting my error, admitting my rebellion, 
admitting that I have tried to dethrone you and prop myself up as king or someone or something else in your place. And the only reason that I have any hope is that you and your infinite mercy have chosen to attach your reputation to my fate. So, Edgewood would find great joy as a church body. You would find great joy as a believer in Christ. I would find great joy if rather than trying to justify and rationalize my sin, and rather than trying to make myself look better, I just freely and openly said, I'm a great sinner, but he's a great God. The, the big turn, though, the big turn, if we can say it this way, is that when Samuel says, the Lord will not abandon his people for the sake of his great name, because the Lord has, has made you, he has done it, you haven't done this, he did this, and so he's the one that has to keep you. He's the one who has to keep this relationship. Then Samuel turns, and he says in verse 23, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. The people call out, Samuel, please pray for us. We're in trouble. We need someone to intercede for us. You have, you have an in with God. You go and you plead and beg on our behalf. He'll listen to you. And Samuel says, yes, okay, I'll do that. I'll continue to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the way that you should go. Okay. How long does that last? How, how long does it last that Samuel will pray for the people and intercede for them? How long does it last that Samuel will instruct and teach them in the way that they should go so that they don't make this mistake again? How long does it last? Well, not too long. It lasts only as long as Samuel lasts, right? And not only does it not last very long because Samuel's not going to last very long, it's also sort of tempered by the fact that Samuel's not exactly perfect himself. Samuel's got his own sins and his own problems to deal with. What God's people need is not only the ability to recognize that they are great sinners, that they commit evil every day even when they don't know it. It's not only that they need to recognize that greater than their sin is the faithfulness of God 
who has attached his name and his reputation to them, they need something that is going to enable them to move from that point forward on in victory over sin. And Samuel in this case says, I'll be the one who plays that role for you. Our provision is clearly better than what the people have in 1 Samuel 12, is it not? So Samuel says, far be it from me that I should cease to pray for you. And then we realize that this same thing is going on in the New Testament, but now it's not a Samuel who's praying for us, it's God himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. So this is number three, God himself prays for us and instructs us in the way that we should go. It would be very encouraging for me as one of God's people in this in 1 Samuel chapter 12 era to know that Samuel was praying for me. It would be really encouraging to be able to hear Samuel praying for me. How encouraged, how hopeful would you be if you could hear Jesus? If you could hear Jesus praying for you. Hebrews 7.25 Therefore he, Jesus, is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Better than Samuel. And again in Romans 8, we don't have this for the screen. Romans eight thirty three and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. The hope that we have as great sinners, as people who are wicked in our natural state, is that we have a God who is greater than sin, who has conquered sin, death, and the devil through the victory of His Son, Jesus Christ. And that not only has every sin, every defiant act been paid for and been bought but that for every single person who comes into union with Jesus Christ, not only has their sin been covered and paid for, they have a faithful king, priest, prophet who intercedes and who prays for them every day. And we have one who knows what our weaknesses are because he himself has experienced the pressures of this fleshly life, 
He knows what it's like to feel fear and panic and dread and the threat of death. He conquered it. And then he gives to us out of his victory and out of his reward exactly what we need so that we can walk in increasing victory over sin. But you will never get, you will never get, you will never experience that victory over sin so long as you try to hide or deny the fact that you are a great sinner. Our wickedness is great, but God is greater. Bow with me in prayer. Father, how foolish we are to try to hide or minimize or justify our sin, not only because it can't be hidden or justified, but because we actually cheat ourselves out of the joy and the reward that comes with seeing you glorified and lifted up as you show yourself to be greater than our sin. Father, I pray for Edgewood, for everyone here, that you would give to us a spirit of humility that is willing on the one hand to recognize and call sin for what it is, but to do so with the full assurance of hope, knowing that Christ has paid for all of it, and that no matter how great or how offensive the sin is, that your power and your forgiveness is greater still. Thank you that you have attached your name and your reputation to us. And because of that, we know that we will live and not die. We know that we will be pardoned and not judged. We praise you and we thank you that your mercy is more. Amen.